This week, analysis of the giant earthquake that struck Chile in April. So this is very much a, a good area to study this particular type of plate boundary that does produce the very largest earthquakes. And astronomers analyse a wildly spinning asteroid near Earth. We knew previously that this asteroid was rotating faster than it should be. And so we wanted to find out why. Plus, epigenetics means mum's environment can affect baby. But there's a caution. This is The Nature Podcast for August the 14th, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. In April 2014, a massive earthquake shook the city of Iquique in Chile. Measuring a powerful 8.2 on the Richter scale, it displaced more than 80,000 people from their homes. Geologists had a hunch that the quake was on its way, but earthquakes are near impossible to predict, and the Iquique event still came as a shock. Now, in two papers published this week, scientists have analysed data recorded at the time to try to piece together just what happened before, during and after the ground shook – and when and if another quake might happen. Roland Bergman of the University of California, Berkeley, has written a News and Views piece about the two papers, and Noah Baker caught up with him, asking if there was anything which we could have picked up on to predict this quake. The magnitude 8.2 Ikiki earthquake, so a very large uh, earthquake, was preceded by, by some activity, especially foreshocks, that... In retrospect, you know, we could say, well, maybe we could have called this one if we would just understand what these foreshocks mean uh, more precisely. The problem is that foreshocks tend to be undistinguishable from other small earthquakes that happen uh, day to day, week to week in any case. So the, the challenge is when is a little earthquake a foreshock? Knowing the answer to that question is really the trick here. And in Nature This Week, there have been two papers published that are studying this Iquique earthquake in particular. What what have they found? They provided very detailed images of the slip on the fault that occurred during the earthquake itself. And then they put those results into the context of the seismicity. So, for example, these foreshocks and also the earthquake history over much longer timescales, over months to uh, even centuries in the area, to really understand, is it the biggest earthquake we can have in that region? Could we really see something about these foreshocks that make them more special than any other little earthquake that we uh, could have seen at other times? And one of the outcomes of these studies is a particularly unnerving one. It sort of suggests that perhaps this large magnitude earthquake wasn't the largest magnitude earthquake that we could maybe expect. That's exactly right. So the last very large earthquake in that part of the plate boundary in Chile uh, was in 1877. And that was a magnitude 8.6 to 8.8. So it was several times bigger than this magnitude 8.2. And so this 8.2 didn't really fill in what we call a seismic gap, meaning that area that last slipped Uh, over a century and a half ago and was understood to be ready now. So only a part of the hazardous part of the fault zone slipped already, meaning that as best as we know, uh, more earthquakes should really happen eventually to fill in the rest of the seismic gap. And these foreshocks are sort of the beginning of this slipping happening? 
The foreshocks may not have been the only thing going on just prior to the Ikiki earthquake, but there was also what we called slow slip, so that the fault partly moved without seismic energy being produced. So the foreshocks were kind of the snap, crackle, and pop of a larger area of the fault starting to slip slowly. And one of the ways that we envision some earthquakes to get started is in this sort of slower slip that then eventually accelerates into the larger event. And how unique is this area of the world in terms of the kind of earthquake that could be happening? You know, how much can we apply this study to other places? So the the Chile plate boundary faults on it's it's a so-called subduction zone, meaning uh, one plate in this case a plate underlying the Pacific Ocean, the Nazca plate, is thrusting itself or pushing below South America, and so that kind of plate boundary we see all around the Pacific Ocean in particular. So here in the United States, in the uh, Washington Oregon state areas. Um, Alaska, Japan, uh, the Philippines, and then also in the Indian Ocean. So it's it's the type of plate boundary uh, that produces the very biggest earthquakes uh, globally. So this is very much a, a good area to study this particular type of plate boundary that does produce the very largest earthquakes. Are papers like this getting us any closer, in, you know, practically, to actually being able to predict these kinds of events? So obviously we always worry about prediction. That is ultimately the the end goal in earthquake science potentially. And and yes, these studies do point towards that there are ways to study these foreshock sequences and maybe this accompanying slow slip and put them in the context of where exactly they occur that do suggest that at least for some earthquakes there is the possibility that at least we can raise warning flags uh, when events happen that really look like the ones that we've seen before this earthquake. That was Roland Bergman talking to Noah. Coming up in the research highlights, an ecosystem in a water droplet and fish get a survival boost from drugs in the water. Plus, our nearest asteroids are really quite messy. But before that... Grandma's Curse. That was the title of an article in The Economist in 2012 about traits that can be passed on to future generations, not through the genetic code itself, but by epigenetic changes. Tweaks made to the way the code is expressed. Results from some epigenetic studies have suggested that multiple generations of experiences can be written into the code. So a mother's diet can affect her baby's risk of obesity later in its life but grandma's smoking habit could affect her grandchild's risk of asthma. A team of social and political scientists and philosophers are concerned with the effects of this coverage on how readily we blame mothers for their children's health. These aren't exactly new accusations either. I spoke to author Sarah Richardson, who studies the history and philosophy of science at Harvard University. This field is looking at the ways in which very subtle perturbations during the intrauterine period, during gestation, can change the activation and operation of areas of the genome that uh, play a role in chronic diseases, uh, mental and physical development, um, and can have long-term implications much later in life. 
And you have some lovely headlines that have been reported when studies like that have come into the media. Mother's diet during pregnancy alters baby's DNA, or even pregnant 9-11 survivors transmit trauma to their children. Yes, my colleagues and I have been struck by the surging popular interest in this new research and the way in which it is often simplified um, and exaggerated and moved very, very quickly into advice to individual women for daily living and for actions during pregnancy and suggesting that the most Uh, subtle of her behaviors could have large amplified impacts for herself, for her offspring, for society, for her, her descendants. And we're worried that these kinds of claims could contribute to increased regulation and surveillance over women's everyday behaviors in the way that claims in the past unfortunately have. This isn't the first time that new or scant scientific evidence has been the basis of blanket health advice. It got me wondering about the history of advice for expectant mothers. So I asked two mums who had children at different times what they remembered. I don't know if you want to introduce yourself. Probably easier if you do, it is it? This is my mum, Val Smith. And? Hello, Kerry. Hello, how are you doing? All right, thanks. This is my grandmother, Barbara Morgan. Mum had me and my brother in the early 1980s. Probably the things that would stand out more are advice against smoking and drinking. And I think there was definitely advice to try and eat a healthy, balanced diet. Um, But I don't really remember people giving a lot of concrete advice in, you know, leaflet form or anything like that. Sarah told me that US mums received similar advice in the 80s, But it was more strident, despite weak evidence for any ill effects of moderate drinking. So a good example um, is fetal alcohol syndrome, which, believe it or not, was only recognized in the 1970s. And within five years in the United States, the U.S. Surgeon General had advised that no level of alcohol consumption was safe for pregnant women, and bars and restaurants had to put up huge signs advising women not to drink during pregnancy because it could cause birth defects. Now, two decades later, three decades later, um, studies have shown that this is, in fact, an inaccurate claim. Um, Moderate levels of drinking during pregnancy do not cause adverse effects in children. But these warnings led to a a feeling uh, among women and among the general public um, that they should not even take one sip. And some women were even criminally prosecuted um, and certainly suffered social condemnation. According to my grandmother, immediately post-war in Britain, there wasn't the same degree of regulating pregnancy. I don't remember being given much advice at all. You just got on with it. (laughs) Do you think there was anything you could have done differently, even if someone had said, oh, you should eat eat better food? Well, no, because, of course... um, we were still on rations, really, when I had Doug. That's my mum's elder brother. Sarah says rationing highlights another problem of giving blanket advice. Yes, not all women are in a space where they have the power, the income, the time to change their circumstances in that way. So advice to women to uh, 
eat certain kinds of diets or to live stress or toxin-free lives rather than using this research to support the need for societal level solutions is one of the problems that we point to. And we advise that researchers and science communicators in all fields uh, be aware of the real-life legal and regulatory implications of these claims. That was Sarah Richardson of Harvard University, with big thanks to to Val Smith and Barbara Morgan. The comment piece is at nature.com slash nature. And now for the best science elsewhere. These are the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. In a tiny water droplet in a huge lake of tar, scientists have found an impressive mini-ecosystem. Despite the unfriendly conditions, certain bugs thrive, and they could help to break down oil spills. Researchers from Germany sequenced the DNA in droplets from Pitch Lake, a huge tar pit on the island of Trinidad. They discovered different species of bacteria and archaea inside the droplets. The species team up to break down and consume the surrounding oil. As well as clearing up oil spills, removing the communities from oil reservoirs could help oil companies avoid degradation. Find that paper in Science. Fish exposed to anti-anxiety drugs are healthier than fish that aren't. Most risk assessments just measure the potential harms of water contaminants using lab-bred fish. But scientists in Sweden wanted to measure a wider spectrum of effects. So they gave the common anti-anxiety drug oxazepam to embryonic and two-year-old Eurasian perch from a Swedish lake. Exposure to oxazepam made the fish more active and more likely to survive. But why would a drug meant to relax people have this effect? The team thinks it might be because less stressed fish spend less time with their friends and more time foraging for food, improving their chances of survival. Read more in Environmental Research Letters. There are millions of asteroids in our solar system, but one in particular has caught the eye of astronomers. 1950 DA is a small asteroid, about a kilometre in diameter, and it's being watched closely because it might collide with Earth in 800 years' time. You're probably picturing a lump of rock, but 1950 DA is actually a loose collection of rubble, some of its pieces no bigger than 6 centimetres. And this puzzles scientists because the asteroid is spinning too quickly for gravity to be holding the rubble together. The centrifugal force from the spin should fling the rubble from the surface. So what's stopping this rapidly rotating rubble pile from breaking apart? A team at the University of Tennessee have shown that additional forces are at work. Van der Waals forces, weak attractions between molecules. First author Ben Rositas explained to Charlotte Stoddart. The asteroid we studied is 1950DA. We knew previously that this asteroid was rotating faster than it should be. Um, And so we wanted to find out why. And to do that, we had to weigh how heavy the asteroid was. And once we got the, the mass out, we found out it was um, a surprise that it was much lower than expected. It didn't have enough gravity to hold itself together, and this required cohesive forces to hold it together and prevent it from breaking up. And what do you mean by cohesive forces? Uh, by cohesive forces, we mean um, like weak van der Waal forces between the individual grains that make up the rubble pile asteroid. Van der Waal forces are very weak, but... Um, 
when you get really small asteroids, um, the gravity gets very, very weak. That um, the forces can actually become comparable in this case. Do you think there are lots of asteroids out there that are spinning too fast, and so you know might be rubble pile asteroids like this one with these cohesive forces holding them together? You know, we've observed lots of small asteroids that are spinning faster than gravity can allow. But um, in the past, we previously thought that they were consolidated or solid bodies throughout, whereas this work shows that they can be actual rubble piles instead. Was that a surprise to you? Uh, it was a, a surprise because we were expecting uh, 1950 DA to be made of uh, metal throughout, and so we were expecting to find a really high bolt density, and so the, really, the low bolt density was quite a surprise for us, and yeah, it told us that 1950 DA was a completely different asteroid to what we previously thought it was. So if it's not made of metal, what are these grains made from? Uh, the grains are made from like, everyday rock, really. Not entirely sure what's on the inside, but on the outside we see a very fine-grained material, a lot like the lunar surface. And in your paper you say that these grains are up to six centimetres in diameter, so they're really quite small. Is there any danger that the weak forces holding the asteroid together might fail for some reason and the rubble pile might break up? That's a good point. As, the, as these cohesive forces are very tenuous, uh, a small impact, such as through like a meteorite or an artificial impact through a spacecraft, may destabilise them. And once you've destabilised the cohesive forces, you may cause the asteroid to break up into several smaller asteroids. And what would happen if a rubble pile asteroid hit Earth? Well, that depends on the size of the rubble pile. For, the, for 1950DA, um, it's a rubble pile about a kilometre across, and that can cause um, damage at a global scale. About 10 years ago, it thought it might actually impact the Earth in 800 years' time. But at present, um, observations suggest that it has a 1 in 20,000 chance of impacting the Earth now. Right, so not an immediate worry to us. But are there any lessons for people who worry about trying to deflect asteroids? Yeah, this um, word does definitely raise implications. If another rubble pile that was rotating too fast is found to be on an impact course with the Earth, then the, the usual impact mitigation strategies, such as like slamming a spacecraft uh, into it as hard as you can may not work because you end up, you risk the breaking asteroid into several smaller threatening asteroids. So you have to consider alternative scenarios where you don't interact with the asteroid directly. Um, one possible case is, is to use a gravity tractor where you put a massive spacecraft near the asteroid and then just use the force of gravity to slowly tug the asteroid away from its collision course. Do you think there are quite a few of these rubble pile asteroids that might be on a collision course with Earth? Well, of all the spacecraft visits, we've only really encountered uh, maybe one near-Earth asteroid that is definitely a solid body throughout, or the others seem to be rubble piles. Asteroid impact mitigation should definitely start looking into how we should deflect such a rubble pile in case it is found on a collision course with Earth, just... The current techniques may not be the best way. That was Ben Rositas talking to Charlotte. This week's news is brought to you by Chief News Editor David Ray. Welcome, David. Hello, Kelly. 
Now, first off in the news chat this week, uh, deep sea mining is the topic and some cruises are starting in earnest to find out whether mining the very deep sea uh, is going to be a bad environmental idea. That's exactly it, yeah. So this is an idea that's been kicking around for a long time, uh, putting up deposits of um, mostly metals from the, the hydrothermal vents deep below the sea, especially the Middle Atlantic Ridge is sort of one example of where they commonly found. Uh, so... All's well and good in that respect. It's going to earn people a lot of money and the countries are already giving concessions for these minings. The problem is, and what the searchers are concerned about, is that no one knows the effects of the animals that live down at this kind of depth. And we're talking between two and five kilometres. What on earth the effects are going to be on them? Is it going to kill them? Is it going to actually be of benefit to them or, or what? So a load of studies are being done now by a, a European project called the Midas Project, which is cruising out into the Mid-Atlantic Ridge to test the effects of deep sea mining on things like mussels. By, by doing, I suppose, little mini mining projects to see what the effects are on, of those very small scale uh, endeavours? That's exactly it. Yeah, I mean, this is a three year project and it started in November. And at the moment, they're sort of generally sensing, trying to find out just what sort of health these mussels communities are in at the moment, whether they're doing well. And I'm sure they are because they're undisturbed. And then they're going to go back over the next couple of years and they're going to figure out, they're going to mimic the effects of these particle plumes, which will be kicked up by these huge machines, which will be toiling the seabed to, to um, harvest these uh, manganese nodules and, and poly metallic nodules as well and and see what the effects on the muscles are. Right. I mean, mussels are two a penny, but aren't people more worried about more exotic um, species that might be found near these hydrothermal vents, these very rare ecosystems? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these tests in particular are looking at the mussels because the communities of them down there are so big, but there are plenty of other species, even more sensitive ones than mussels that live down there, which the researchers uh, will be monitoring as well. But I guess the, the aim of this project isn't to say, OK, you cannot ever mine from these things, but just to try and manage the process, because some people have been given the go-ahead, right, to start doing this. That, again, yeah, that's, that's spot on, Kelly. I mean, th- these projects are due to start very soon. One out in the Bismarck Sea near Papua New Guinea, for example, is well under well, well underway in, in its populations anyway. But until they've, they haven't done a huge amount of environmental impact assessment. So these researchers are sort of stepping in to kind of do that for them to, uh, to figure out exactly what the effects are. And when can we expect um, a report of the effects? Yeah, so it's a 12 million euro project, this Midas uh, series of expeditions, and it will be delivered after three years. So I think we're expecting about the autumn of 2016 when they're coming back with the full results to tell pretty much everyone what, what they think is, is, is the effect of these particle plumes. If it, if it turns out that there are disastrous environmental impacts of these kinds of projects, is there any way that they will be scaled back or even stopped? Well, I think the mining companies will definitely take an interest. I mean, this is a very powerful sort of uh, moneyed group of people uh, who are sort of spending a lot of money looking into this this method of deep sea mining. It's by no means cheap compared to doing the same thing on land. So they're going to be um, quite interested in the results of this. And I think what this Midas project is doing is, is going to set them a sort of outline guidelines for how they can do things better when everyone knows a little bit more about the effects. OK, well, our second story involves a virus, but not the one you might expect, given that the world's media are all over uh, Ebola in the past couple of weeks. I'm going to direct people to the website nature.com slash news for more news on that as it breaks. Um, but we're going to talk about another virus, chikungunya, which uh, your reporter has analysed in the news section this week. Yeah, that's sort of another exotically named uh, disease, but fortunately one that's not as deadly as, uh, as Ebola. Make that clear from the start. But this is, uh, chikungunya has been a problem in the Caribbean for about the last six months. It's a disease which has been well, first found in the 1950s over in Africa. It's affected Asia and many other places since then. But it's an exotic disease which is now uh, knocking on the door of the US, bearing in mind that its proximity to the Caribbean. And there's concerns in the US uh, that it may well take hold 
and uh, and infect enormous amounts of people. It's already infected 500,000 people in the Caribbean. So there's uh, certainly a sort of sense of um, foreboding in the US about what to do about this. What are the effects of this virus and then how does it get around? It's mosquito-borne and it's uh, obviously a virus, not a parasite, unlike malaria. Uh, and it's... Um, transmitted in, in two sort of different types of mosquitoes and we'll get back to that in a second because that's a quite a, a sort of key point the main effects of it are, are um arthritic as in you get very stiff joints very painful joints uh, and a high fever it's not generally deadly it only kills a small sort of number of people but it's still uh, a big problem especially in developing nations where it sort of disables people and the economic cost of course is important right and as you said earlier knocking on the door of the u.s and that has something to do with the hosts that can carry this the mosquitoes that can bear this virus yeah, so we it, it's often found in the same type of mosquito which carries uh, malaria and dengue fever, which is the Aedes aegypti uh, mosquito. But it's now been also found in the Asian tiger mosquito, and this is a bit of a change for the for the virus because this mosquito is far more aggressive than the the, the tropical uh, Aedes aegypti. So it's biting people during the day, and also this mosquito, the Asian tiger, lives can live in in far cooler temperatures, which means it's. I mean, for example, in the US, it's already reached as far north as the New York State. Well, as the uh, more topical mo- mosquitoes are sort of limited to the Caribbean and the, and the southern belt of the US. So the Centre for Disease Control, the CDC in the, in the US, are they responding to this um, in, any, in any way yet? Not quite yet. I mean, only four cases of actual chikungunya being picked up within the United States. Lots of cases of people going on holiday to the Caribbean and bringing it back. But the main danger for people like the CDC and, and the sort of researchers who are trying to model what the potential outbreak could look like is that the virus is mutating and there's particularly nasty strains of it, which generally are far harder to treat. And with it changing from one or jumping from one mosquito, which is normally sort of uh, left to a fairly confined area into one that's going all over the United States obviously presents a big risk. And one recent study has sort of said that there is a perfect storm of type of mosquito and the strain of virus that it carries. Uh, And that is the Asian tiger carrying a a strain of chikungunya that was found in a Pacific island and caused a huge outbreak there um, a couple of years ago. So if that perfect storm happens and these mosquitoes come in, in sort of in numbers across to the United States, then there's a danger of a really big outbreak of this disease. It's all sounding like quite a foreboding film again, isn't it? These recent modelling efforts, I mean, how likely is it that um, that this population of mosquitoes that's needed and the level of virus or whatever that they're carrying, um, you know, could could result in a big outbreak in the States. This is where the, essentially are, are the people who we've got commenting in the story are asking for more work. I mean, mosquito tapping is a very important part of it. They can find out what part of the United States, what mosquitoes they're catching and, um, and where these mosquitoes are going. So that's the work they're calling for at the moment is to do that study and, and find out what's where and and also sort of keep an eye on how this uh, virus is actually mutating and whether, you know, what strains are, are more dangerous than other ones. All right. Asian tiger mosquitoes and hydrothermal vents. Thank you, David Ray, for that eclectic mix. There's more, of course, at nature.com slash news. And keep an eye on the Nature YouTube channel this week for our newest video on the most precious of all the colours and the hardest to make. We tell the story of blue. Plus, our video from last week, charting hundreds of years of culture in just five minutes, has been watched by half a million people. Why not join them? That's it from us. Drop us a line, podcast at nature.com or tweet us at naturepodcast. And thanks to Twitter user at datavortex, who sent us a picture of his podcast listening place, the NYC2 line. And at P. Barmby, who listens on the treadmill. Where do you listen? Tweet or email us a pic. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith.